Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So uh, today I have a guest that is going to teach us a thing or two about scaling, financing, and then also exiting your company. So I guess without further ado, Teo Cod, welcome here to the show today. Thank you, Alejandro. Thanks for having me. So originally from India, from uh, the south of India, next to Bangalore. How was life growing up there? It was great. So, you know, we were uh, part of a middle class, upper middle class family. Lots of, you know, love, especially for my mother. She was a very, you know, doting, caring uh, parent and always wanted the very best for us. And it was uh, kind of an intellectual uh, upbringing, right? So my both of my grandparents were authors in my native kind of language and uh, we had a library of three three and a half thousand books at home and that's kind of the environment i i grew up in and uh yeah so it was it was fun that's really cool and how how did you develop your love for computers so you know i always knew growing up that i wanted to be an engineer that's kind of the you know, default career path uh in india right parents push you towards being an engineer or a doctor and uh but you know, I did want to become uh, a, an, an uh, engineer growing up, and I made some choices in in uh, school, even before I started undergrad, that kind of made the path of becoming a doctor impossible, right? So I dropped biology. I didn't even study some of those subjects. Just to me, I took electronics and subjects like that that made sure that uh, that was the only option uh, that was available to me. And uh, you know, I ended up studying electrical engineering in my undergrad, and I was always fascinated by the internet. So remember, this was me sitting in in uh, India back in uh, the 90s and and early 2000s, and when I kind of did my undergrad uh, between 2000 and 2004, and uh, out here in Silicon Valley, things were just coming out of the uh, kind of the big uh, bust, right? And and uh, but still, it was fascinating to me, and I. I really read about and kept up with every little thing that was happening out here, all the launches. I was a big student of uh, technology history, and I tried to read as many founding stories and biographies of founders. And that just somehow was fascinating and interesting to me. And and that's how I kind of got started. And 
you know, and I, you know, started my career as an engineer and uh, it was at a company called Infosys, which was kind of an outsourced services company uh, in India. It didn't last there long. Learned very quickly that large companies aren't for me. And then I went and joined a startup and, and uh, got to work on and build some really cool stuff, right? So that's, that's how I uh, got started. So what was the, uh, that first startup experience like for you? It was it was very interesting. It was a fantastic learning experience, and we had all of the ups and the downs. And you know, like I said, I started my career at a very large company. It was like many tens of thousands of employees, and I figured out pretty quickly that that wasn't for me, right? And that was not what I would uh, have fun doing uh, because up to that point, my life was largely on autopilot, right? Like I said, it was a fairly uh, you know straightforward middle class uh, upbringing, and I wasn't really challenged that much and you know school was quite easy and as I was going through those uh, different stages went into undergrad and and it was finally when I was passing out I got kind of the kick in the behind I guess during my undergrad when my dream of course was to work for some of the best technology companies in the world and it was uh, uh, kind of a big wake up call when uh, none of them would even give me an interview right and because in India, when you study electrical engineering, you're not really studying uh, computer science, right? It's, it's leaning a little more towards hardcore electrical engineering. And, uh, you know, the kind of companies that I looked up to, right, the uh, Microsofts and the Googles and, you know, Yahoo was a pretty big name. They had a pretty big operation out in Bangalore back then. None of them would were even interested in, in interviewing uh, people who had uh, kind of a background in electrical engineering. And that really made me sit down and think about, wait, what do I really want? What do I want to do? And, and that's when I started getting a little serious about, uh, you know, focusing on the work I was doing. And, and the answer that I kind of came up with for myself was, look, this is what I'm really passionate about, right? Like uh, technology companies and, and startups and founding stories and how are these things done? And, how, and I was always a big believer that, uh, technology and engineering especially is a great way to kind of have an impact, right? And in terms of leverage, in terms of you being able to uh, do some work as an individual and have a hopefully positive impact on lots of people's lives, technology and computer science and engineering in general gives you that opportunity that uh, a lot of other kind of fields and professions does not. So I was all, always very uh, interested in, in that side of things. And uh, finally, when I had the chance to really sit down and think about what is it that I want to do with the rest of my life, that's what crystallized for myself. And and then, you know, this large company environment didn't really work out. It was the only job I could get, so I took it. Then I went in and then, you know, started uh, uh, working really hard and went into uh, a startup with, and I got the opportunity to do that. My goal in going there was that I wanted, I knew I wanted to do something of my own long term and that was a way for me to learn right and i got an opportunity yeah. to go join the company started by one of the better known technology entrepreneurs in india at the time and and uh, you know i was one of the very early employees fantastic experience in that within six months we figured out you know the whole thesis under which we were building the company wasn't really going to work and and you know and i was building a bunch of these side projects uh, on my own time we ended up launching one of those. That really took off. The entire company changed direction to go after that. And that became my baby for the next three, three and a half years. And uh, it was great, right? So we went from nothing to, you know, uh, one of the largest value-added services providers in the mobile space 
in India uh, within a couple of years. And uh, it was a fantastic learning experience. Of course, didn't have a lot of shares in the company. Uh, yeah. Too stupid to know better. But uh, it was a great learning experience. So then how do you come to the U.S.? So, you know, as I was going through that journey, uh, just a little bit more clarity on that is that the service that I was building on the side, it was a uh, text message based social application, right? And so uh, the initial thesis of the business was that we're going to build a mobile based uh, portal which used data connections. But the flaw in that model was that back in 2006 in India, there were just not enough phones with data connections. Like I think India got 3G in 2010 or 11 or something like that, right? So it was too early. But what everybody did have, you know, there were a hundred odd million phones in India at that point. I think that's closer to a billion at this point. It's a pretty high number. But even back then, the addressable market for voice and text message-based services was there. So I was kind of using some of these APIs that I had to build text message-driven services. And uh, funnily enough, it was, uh, you know, the service that we launched, it launched a couple of uh, months after Twitter launched out here in the Bay Area in, in 2006. So, and then we were growing quite fast in India. Twitter was obviously doing really well out here in the US. And so I always was looking at them from afar and asking ourselves, hey, why are they doing so much better than us? Right? We were in a similar space and we were both seeing fast growth. And uh, I came to the conclusion that one, we weren't really good at a lot of the things that uh, you know it takes to build fantastic products, right? Consumer products, especially around uh, product design and product management and marketing. And you know, all these things really matter. And, and our, our kind of skills as a team really wasn't world-class in those areas, right? And Twitter was clearly doing a much better job you know, in, in that area. And the other thing was location. You know, I kind of uh, decided that location really matters and that Twitter was out here and uh, they were in all the places. They were getting all the early adopters and you know they, they were going to places like south by southwest and blowing up over there and getting a lot of growth and you know i decided that look being on the other side of the world in india where the ecosystem at least back then wasn't really strong wouldn't help me uh, achieve my longer term goal right so i, I decided okay i, I want to come come to uh, silicon valley and that's where i can pursue my kind of dream of being an entrepreneur and, and starting a technology company and things like that and at the same time i wanted to uh, learn and put myself outside my zone of comfort. I was kind of a, you know, an engineer who looked at the world in black and white, right? Everything was binary, but all the interesting stuff happens in the middle, right? In the, in the gray area. So I thought, you know, I'm going to go and study design and I'm going to study human computer interaction. I'm going to just do things that I'm terrible at and maybe it'll, you know, broaden my horizons a bit. And so I ended up coming to uh, UC Berkeley and I, I got a master's. I did that in 2000. Uh, nine, and I focused on those things. Didn't make me a designer or anything like that, but at least I know, you know, uh, how to build products, how to work with people, how to build teams. Those were some of the skills I picked up there, and that's how I ended up uh, uh, coming to the U.S. and to the Bay Area uh, in particular. Really cool. And then your your really first company, right? That was um, that was Next Drop, where you were a co-founder. So so that was right before you started. Automatic, which was about 2010. So tell us about Next Drop, you know, and, and what was that experience of what ended up being the outcome? Yeah, so, you know, Next Drop, you know, it was a social enterprise. It really started on my very first day at Berkeley. I took a class which was all about starting social enterprises. And there was a professor there who was super passionate about it. And, and he was offering this class and sounded interesting to me. And I just went in 
and and a group of us got together to solve this problem that I grew up with, right? Which was all about you know just knowing when water will come uh, in the tap, right? Like in, in in the developed world, that sounds so obvious, like yeah, you turn the tap and water flows, but that's not how it is in in the developing world. Uh, and and there are a lot of social costs because uh, you just don't know when you're going to get water, and and the downstream effect of that is things like. Uh, you know, children are kept back at home from school to make sure that when the water does come, you collect it in all the, uh, you know, containers and stuff like that. And, you know, girls are more uh, impacted by that than boys and things like that. And there are many, many different issues around health and 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 uh, things like that because people just don't know when they're going to have access to water. And so this was kind of a problem that we started uh, trying to solve from an information perspective. And throughout my Two years at Berkeley, we, we ended up uh, working on that problem, and I had a few other people, you know, PhD students and stu- you know, a student from the public policy school and things like that. And and we and I, I was a little more entrepreneurial, right? I, I I knew that we needed money to make anything work, so I focused a little bit more on going to business plan competitions and grants, and you know, making sure that we focus on getting some cash in. And by the end of those two years. We we got a big grant from the Night News uh, organization. There was a, something called the Night News Challenge, and we had raised about a half a million dollars. and And it was interesting because it was also during that time that I had started working on what ultimately became uh, Automatic. So I was in this uh, research department at at uh, the university, and and uh, you know I was working on this project with uh, uh, Jerry, who would later go on to become my co-founder at Automatic, and I, I was identifying this opportunity that I felt could actually be a company because that was partly what I was doing once I came down here. Every experience and every interaction that I had was being put through this filter of, hey, is this, is this a real opportunity to go uh, start a company? I didn't think it would happen so quickly, but by the time I got to the end of those two years, sometime in 2011, I now had a choice to make. Right, I had to ask myself, okay, I have a half a million dollars in the bank. On next drop it's a social enterprise i could keep going and working on it uh, or i have uh, automatic and 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 uh, it was not called automatic by, back then but but that was a more you know uh you know traditional kind of a technology uh company opportunity to pursue and you know i had to make that call and i decided you know what like that's the larger dream that i came here with i'm going to pick the greedy capitalist company you know yeah. so social enterprise can 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 wait for a bit and I decided to go work on Automatic, and, and then we later got accepted to Y Combinator in the summer of 2011, and, and that journey started there, right? And so you know, I, I stayed on for a while advising next off for the next few years and things like that, but my focus completely shifted to uh, uh, Automatic and ended up building that company for about six years. Till, and we'll talk, uh, about, we'll talk about Automatic, but, but let me ask you, what, what, what ended up being the outcome of NextDrop? So, yeah, NextDrop... So a couple of the other founders went forward with it and, and uh, they ended up working on it. They're still working on it. And they actually also uh, got accepted into Y Combinator independently. They pivoted a little bit in terms of the problem that they were solving. I think they got accepted into Y Combinator, was it in 2016 or something like that? And and they're still you know uh, going strong. And I'm a little less associated with Nextrop at this point, but uh, that's that's where that stands. Okay, well, let's talk about Automatic now. So then you go into Automatic, you had a decision that you had to make, and you go at it with both feet. So how was the, um, you know, the, the, the day, you know, like where you finally say, hey, we're going to make it happen, 
and and you get your co-founders together. What what was that founding team? What did that founding team look like? So it was me and my uh, co-founder Jerry. He was a PhD student at the same lab, and we worked together. And so the so just a little bit of background. The problem that Jerry had started working on that I went and joined him to help out and to build some of the infrastructure and things like that was basically answer the question of, is it possible to study transportation behavior? Like, how do people make choices around when to drive or walk or take the bus or, or you know, or things like that? And is, is, there a, is there an opportunity to influence that behavior and, and make them, you know, change uh, how they behave, right? And so... Uh, we had built a bunch of uh, you know technology to monitor ex- essentially what the existing behavior was and so the, the new thing that we were doing in that research was traditionally in that field people generally gave uh, diaries to participants and said hey, you write down right like what did you do today and that was not super accurate so smartphones had just come out this was like early 2009 uh, and 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 toward in, in that period and smartphones were just getting popular and we thought look lots of sensors install an app that runs in the background, is always looking at data from all of the sensors, we would upload all of that sensor data to the cloud, do machine learning on it, and quite accurately determine when they were driving, walking, running, all of the different modes of transportation. And that was kind of the thing that we uh, uh, brought to uh, the table. And it was at the same time that, you know, I was just a grad student, right? I was a broke grad student here in, in the U.S. First time I was here, and uh, and, and I bought a car, uh, and it, this was like a, you know, 1998 Honda Accord, and, and uh, I had to buy insurance, right? And this insurance was $1,600 or $1,700. It was like way more than what I was making every month as a grad student. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. Why is this so expensive? Like, I'm, I'm a pretty good driver. It's a shitty old car. Why is it so expensive? I started digging into it, digging into it. And I essentially understood that, look, it is that expensive because I don't have a history. And, you know, I'm, I'm new in the country. They have no idea whether I'm a safe driver or not. And in general, the insurance industry works without any data, and and you know, and we had, but then the bulb went off, right? Like we had built this technology, which easily gave you access to data about you know when you're driving and how you're driving and things like that. And so that's when I started connecting the dots all the way to how you know your car is the most expensive computer, but you have never ever it's not connected, right? And there's it's a huge ecosystem in an industry. And, and uh, everybody wants access to that data. There are lots of services that are beneficial to the owners of the cars that you could provide to them. If only you could get that data out of the car. And, and that's what we started uh, working towards. And I basically took Jerry out to lunch and said, look, I, I really think there's an opportunity here. And, and, and uh, do you want to come uh, build this company uh, with me? And he was game for it. And we got going. Nice. So what ended up being the uh, business model behind Automatic? So, you know, we... Uh, we Essentially, when we got into Y Combinator in 2011, it wasn't uh, uh, yet a hardware company, which it ultimately became. We just had the mobile app that we had built. We were a little more focused on the insurance use case. And one of the big lessons I learned going through that process was, uh, you know, how hard it was to sell to these larger companies. We just weren't, you know, ready or experienced as a team to go sell to large insurance companies. Like I was like completely ignorant about what it would take uh, to make that happen. And, and so uh, along the way, I, we learned that. For almost a year, I banged my head against the wall trying to make that happen. Just did not happen. And towards the end of that year, you know, we slightly changed our model to say that, look, let's play to our strengths 
and let us go to market by first showing the value of what having access to data from the car can do for consumers. Because part of what we had heard over and over from insurance companies was, look, we all know that having access to the data will allow us to better determine risk and potentially give discounts and you know, figure out who's a good driver, bad driver. But why would a customer do that? Why would they want to give access to their driving data? It's very private data. So there has to be some value that they see out of it other than the discount. And that's something we heard over and over. So we you know, decided to focus on our strength, which was as a team, which is building a high quality consumer product, right? So at the same time, I decided that you know, just having a smartphone, the data just wasn't good enough or strong enough to solve some of these longer term uh, use cases around what you could do with the data coming out of the car. So we decided, yeah, we're going to make a hardware device that connects to a standard port that every car has. And we're going to pull that data out and we're going to start by showing what that value is for consumers, right? And so we focused on that, uh, you know, and then for the next, say, uh, 12 months, we did that. We launched that product in the market in 2013. That, that was great. And, and we launched the product in the Apple stores. We kind of set a high bar, you know, for ourselves that, right, that if you go make a hardware device, and again, a lot of naivete in there, in, and we didn't really know what we were getting into, but but we decided that if you make a hardware device, you know, it has to be the kind that Apple would be happy to carry in their stores, right? But ultimately, we did it, but it, it was a lot of learning and, and uh, stumbles along the way. But we finally uh, uh, did that, and we sold it in the Apple stores and Best Buy and all of these traditional retailers. So we had that consumer business. But once that was a little established, we then that allowed us to open the doors to have a lot more meaningful conversations with uh, these large uh, auto insurance companies. That was the first enterprise vertical that we went after, right? So we were building this platform, uh, cloud-based platform, which ingested all of this data coming in from cars. And, and uh, the job now was to show, okay, here's consumer value that we can deliver. And here is how all of these different verticals in the enterprise space can start uh, monetizing that data and using it to better their own processes to build new products and all of that, right? And so that was the second kind of part of that journey of of uh, automatic. Got it. And and for you guys, I mean, the the company was founded as you were saying in 2011, but your Series A, you ultimately raised it in 2013. So definitely bumpy because something like this it needs an injection of capital and it's capital intensive. So. So how did you guys, what did you guys do during this couple of years where you were kind of like lean to the max? Yeah, no, it was, it was, you know, when, when I, when I started, uh, uh, automatic, uh, with Jerry, like I said, both of us are pretty much broke grad students. Right. And for the longest time, the two of us didn't pay ourselves a salary. And, and, you know, we, we lived in a, during Y Combinator, we lived in a little flat in, in Mountain View, but then we moved up to the city. It was kind of in a shitty part of uh, San Francisco. We, we, we kind of uh, rented the cheapest house uh, we could find, and the house was our office, and, and we didn't pay ourselves salaries. I had a debit card for the company's bank account, and I went to the grocery store and, and bought groceries, and, and that was kind of how we f- fed ourselves. And that's pretty much it, right, because Y Combinator had given us some money. And, and uh, there was, you know, many different ups and downs uh, during that process, you know, maybe not worth uh, getting into here in detail, but one thing I should probably uh, talk about at a high level that might be interesting to the listeners is, is especially the founders who might just be in, in, in earlier stages of building a company, you know, towards the end of Y Combinator, 
there was this uh, you know massive uh, implosion around how one of the early uh, employees that I had brought in. Remember, I had told you how I was learning that I just can't go sell into the insurance industry. Yeah. You know, I decided to bring in uh, somebody much uh, uh, more senior in terms of. Uh, somebody who had actually founded an insurance company and I decided to bring him on and we had almost closed the seed round at the end of Y Combinator. He decided to do a bait and switch and basically said, look, make me the uh, CEO, otherwise I'm going to quit. And there was wow. this whole drama around that. And and we decided to just uh, uh, separate from him at that point, Jerry and I. Uh, and and uh, uh, clearly the whole seed round did not happen. I we'd all thought that, okay, this company is going to die now because we had basically spoken to half of Silicon Valley and 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 uh, now I couldn't go back to them and, and close any money, right? Because uh, where's this other guy that you had brought in and, and there was all of this drama happening within the company and so we just slowed down, did nothing for three more months, went and focused on the product, heads down, and, and uh, then came back, uh, you know, after three or four months and ended up closing a seed round. And, and uh, you know, that was a big lesson. The biggest lesson I took away is that, especially in the earlier stages of the business, if something is not working, you can't assume that somebody else will magically come and solve that problem for you, right? And so that's a lesson that, you know, I, I'm never going to uh, forget from, from that experience. And that's kind of been reinforced through the yeah. years. I've kind of built automatic and now Airbase and things like that. Whatever are the existential problems that your business faces, like you as the founder have to be focusing on those yourself and finding an answer to those. Yes, you're going to surround yourself with smart people and, and uh, it, it takes a team. But some of those extremely important existential questions for the business, you know, you as a founder and CEO have to own those and then figure out a way to solve them yourself. And you just can't try to outsource that to somebody else. So then how did you guys address that? Because, I mean, I can imagine, you know, like the awful situation that you're in where you brought this guy to all the meetings. He's part of the team, and then all of a sudden, he's never in the picture, and that's probably sending a negative signal to the market. So how did you address that? Yeah, no, look, the, the way I addressed it is I stopped the fundraising process, and I said, I'm going to come back after three months, and I'm going to have a better story. I went and found other advisors you know, from Progressive and a bunch of these other uh, companies. I built up an advisory board to give investors the confidence that, yeah, we do have the right level of a knowledge of that space and we have the right advisors in that space and then i went back and ended up uh pitching uh you know a few more funds and uh you know this was kind of a wild swing right and and what happened at that point was two really good firms Andreessen horowitz and founders fund ended up investing in our seed round and at that point i decided okay i have the wind in the back now and we just went and went on AngelList at that point. This was back in 2011, kind of early days for AngelList too. And I, I basically went on AngelList and said, hey, we're just coming out of, of the latest Y Combinator batch and we're funded by Y Combinator and Reason Horowitz and Founders Fund. And we're closing out our seed round. And boom, within the course of a week, we closed out our $1.5 million seed round. And, and we kind of went from the brink of death to uh, just wrapping up our seed round. And, and we had the money that we needed to go uh, show that we had something, right? And so, uh, and, and that's another, you know, important lesson is that you're going to have these near-death moments, but, you know, persistence is, is, is key and you, you stick through it. And, and uh, luckily for us, things worked out. That's amazing. And, and, and how much capital did you guys raise in total before the exit? Uh, about 30 in equity. Uh, and, and we had some debt 
because we were a hardware business, right? So there was some working capital stuff that we raised some debt for, but it's about, it was about 30 million in equity. 30 million. And, and obviously great, great investors. I mean, I see Comcast Ventures, Anthemis Group. Uh, I mean, you were talking about Andreessen Horowitz. So, so great, great folks. I mean, was this like all part of the network that you had built in Y Combinator or, or how did you come across these guys? Yeah, so it was mostly that. And that was partly the big value that Y Combinator gave to Jerry and me was that we were first time founders, right? I, have, I was just in the country for less than two years at that point. I barely had a network of my own when I landed here in the US. I, I guess I had a friend who worked at Intel, I think. And that was the one person I knew uh, in the Valley. But after that, it was all hustle and, and trying to uh, get to know as many people as possible. And Jerry also didn't grow up here. I think he's, he, he's from Southern California. And so he didn't really have a network. So it was all about, you know, and, and that was the real value that uh, YC brought to the table for us was that network and our ability to go and uh, speak to the uh, alumni and, and, and uh, you know, and just the reputational boost that you get uh, by being a part of uh, Y Combinator, right? So that, that certainly helped. Uh, but of course, we might also be the only company in Y Combinator history, or maybe not, like there are lots of companies that have gone through YC since, but at least at that point, the only company that did not raise a single dollar coming out of Demo Day because of this debacle that was happening <laughs> on the side, right? And yeah. so uh, uh, later, you know, we did go and, and uh, uh, you know, use some of those relationships to open doors when we were ready to raise money. And But the bulk of the money that we raised uh, at Automatic of the 30 million actually came from strategic investors, right? Because uh, that's the other lesson that I took away from Automatic is that, uh, you know, maybe we were a couple of years too early, right? Because if you think about it, Silicon Valley was at least back in 2011, 12, 13, when I was uh, starting uh, the process of uh, building Automatic, Silicon Valley always thought that doing anything in the automotive space is a stupid idea. And, and there was partly truth to that, right, for a variety of reasons, but it was only around the late 2013, 2014 stage when uh, automotive, self-driving cars, mobility, and of course, Uber was always there to an extent on the mobility side, but really everything else on the automotive side was just not seen as a good idea. Uh, and and uh, a lot of the venture dollars and things like that started coming into the space around the 2014 kind of uh, stage, right? And so yeah. uh, maybe a couple of years too early, and that's another important lesson is to really ask yourself, it's, it's, it's all well and good if you see that a market is going somewhere, but that doesn't always mean that now is the right time to go after it, right? And, and you know, so that's a big lesson that I took away from that process is to really spend more time on the question of why now, right? Is now the right time? Is the overall market ready? Are the customers ready? Is the investment community ready? Is it a capital intensive business that you are uh, setting out to build? If yes, you better make sure that uh, you know the investor community is also at that same stage where they're willing to put in money into a space, right? And so, so uh, you know, in, in our case, uh, they weren't exactly there uh, early on. So I ended up following a financing strategy where the bulk of the dollars came from strategic investors who actually got the problem, right? Because they were living it. They saw the value. They were talking about these trends internally. They were thinking about what their plans were going to be, uh, uh, you know, over the next few years. And they were more willing to back the companies uh, who were speaking that language, who understood uh, where this whole uh, space was going. And so the bulk of our uh, investment dollars came from uh, uh, strategic investors. So then, so then let me ask you this. So you got all this money 
you guys are executing. And, and, and then, you know, in 2017, you know, obviously you did an exit, you know, later and, and great outcome, but, but I guess in 2017, you hit another bump. And I think that that's a, you know, a bump probably more like at a personal level, because always letting people go is not fun, but you know, you have to achieve certain milestones and you got to be a strategic. So, so what happened there? No, hundred percent. And that was, you know, I, I had to do a layoff and let go of uh, 25% of my company in early uh, 2016, right? Because ultimately, you know, as with any business, you have to kind of be very, very sure that either you're bringing in the money or the amount of money you're spending, if they don't kind of add up at the end of the day, if you're upside down, you're in a tough spot, right? And so I guess the mistake that I made as, as CEO at the end of the day was assuming that one, we're going to hit some of the milestones and bring in the revenue uh, to make up for some of these investments that we were making and the increase of the headcount and things like that. And also assuming that the market was just going to stay the way it uh, uh, always was, right? And at least for the few years that, uh, you know, in, in the early 2000s, it, it was quite good in terms of uh, an entrepreneur's ability to go raise money and things like that. But all of a sudden in 2016, that changed, right? And, and for the folks who remember who were around, 2016 was like a very difficult year. Like investors really uh, were kind of not uh, making too many investments. And the, the bar just went up much, much uh, higher in terms of the kinds of companies uh, that, that got funded and, and the kinds of traction and progress and evidence that was being asked for before our checks were being written. And which meant that, you know, if I didn't make that decision to kind of uh, do a layoff in the company, we would just be dead by the end of the year, right? So the focus really became, okay, how do we make sure that uh, we make what we have last and how do we get to profitability as soon as possible and 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 sacrifice on growth and and all of those things, right? And yeah, and that was obviously like at least so far in my in my life the most uh, difficult decision that I've had to make. And having to look, you know, a lot of the people that I had sold to and asked them to come join me on this journey to now look at them and say that, oops, sorry, you know, I screwed up and I don't have a job for you anymore. That's like the worst feeling ever. And and uh, that's the kind of thing that you don't easily forget. Right. And, and so, what, 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 what did you do, and 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 how, what what who were you being as a leader? And I would say in order to get over that bump and to continue to lead the way, yeah, because but, I I kind of I kind of I can assume that just like you were saying, you know, very hard moment. Uh, obviously, you know, this has an impact on the morale and on the culture. So, so how how were you able to to overcome this? One hundred percent. And you know, at the end of the day. First of all, you, you, this is not about me or the company at that point, right? This is obviously a lot harder on the people who are at the receiving end of it. And so you try to be compassionate and you try to be understanding and you try to do everything you can to be helpful and supportive uh, to them uh, at that moment. And then you also try to be as transparent as possible with the team, uh, you know, of what, for why this is happening and what was kind of the assumptions we made. And I guess at the end of the day, if you do that, you know, people understand and, and they want to help and, and see this uh, whole thing through because the larger market opportunity was always there, right? And that's the thing with any company that you build. As long as you are in the right market and you're, you know, building the right things for the right customers and solving the right problems, you don't always control timing, right? So that's something that you might not have control over. And that's another thing to think about when you are going after a specific space is, how long does it take for revenues to materialize? What, how long were the sales cycles? And 
do we have the exact right team to make some of these things happen? Obviously, those are all the you know super valuable lessons that I took away from that uh, process. But but yeah, it's it's you know you just try to be as uh, you know open and transparent about you know your own failings and and the mistakes and the learnings that happen, and then try to be as supportive of the people that you have to uh, part ways with because you know that's just the not only is it the right thing to do, but the rest of the team is also watching you, right? Like, how are you treating uh, the people who are uh, that you are now parting ways with? Because a lot of them are friends, and uh, you know, and you want to make sure that people don't feel like anybody is being treated uh, uh, badly. And and that was not kind of our culture. That was not kind of how we did things anyway. But I think you know, ultimately, uh, I'm not saying it's it's easy for any team, but you know, we managed to get through it and get to the other side and. And yeah. uh, thank you for that. Well, let's talk about the other side and getting it to the finish line, to the to the finish, the, to the finish line. Absolutely. So, so how did the acquisition come about? So this was, you know, in, in in any company, there's always a plan A, plan B, plan C. Like I said, you know, plan A for us was raise money, keep going. We weren't, uh, you know, on the path of being profitable, uh, given that we were a capital-intensive hardware business. And you know, if I look back now, right? If I look back at all of the uh, uh, hardware companies that have been built or at least attempted. Like I, I've actually gotten into the habit of now adding to a list the name of any company that I hear about has, didn't make it, right? Because building a hardware company is tough. And this is one of those things that if I knew what I was getting into before I uh, started, I would never have done it kind of things, right? And so uh, building a hardware company is especially hard, you know, given how capital intensive it is, given just how long product iteration takes, and you know, there are so many different ways and so many different failure scenarios that are unique to hardware companies that, uh, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, I just didn't know about and now know, and I'm smarter about it. And I try to kind of help other founders who are thinking about it, at least uh, be smarter about it and go into it knowing what they're getting into, right? And so, you know, that, that was... Uh, something that you know we had already learned about and we were uh, evolving and the plan a for us was try to raise money and and uh, uh, stay the course right there was a larger vision there was a larger opportunity that we were going after and then as we were going through that bad market in in uh, 2016 there was also this plan b and uh, around okay we should consider having an conversations and building relationships around uh, and with companies that we might potentially be acquired somewhere, right? Because it's just a smart thing to do for any founder. I think it's it would be a bad idea if you assume that, look, I'm going to go IPO someday, be a massive you know, success, a billion-dollar company, or I'm going to fail. That's just irresponsible, right? Especially when you have taken a bunch of money uh, from investors. That is a responsibility at least I take very, very seriously in that you, you take somebody's money, you should give all of it and, and, and a bunch more back to them. And uh, same thing with your employees who have potentially given up compensation cash and have taken equity as compensation. And you know you have to make sure that all of them get uh, something for the sacrifices that they have made, right? And so you know, while there is always the attempt to continue to build uh, as successful a company as you can, you know, I think it's a good idea to have a plan B where you're talking, where you're thinking about, okay, what am I fallback options here as I think through the next 12, 18, 24, 36 months. Uh, and, and for us, that option was, hey, 
there's an exit, potential exit, because we knew what we were working on and the platform we had built was valuable to many different aspects of the larger automotive ecosystem, right? We were uniquely uh, fortunate with that. And because there are so many, the automotive industry is so large and there was so much interest and appetite in this big wave that was happening where every car was getting connected, there was data coming out of it. And everybody from the telecom industry and ultimately it was Sirius XM that acquired us and, and they're you know, kind of a tier one OEM. People don't really know them as that, but you know, they, they do a lot of business with uh, car makers. There are whole, that's an ecosystem and you know, the insurance industry is a very large part of that automotive ecosystem. So there are many multi-hundred billion dollar industries within that larger automotive industry that you know, clearly had an interest in what we had built and we were at the cutting edge of that. So uh, the plan B was, you know, build these relationships. And even if it's not for an exit, it might be for a partnership, it might be for distribution, and it might be to clearly understand, uh, you know, how they are thinking about it and how could we partner with them to help them get ahead you know, in terms of their own roadmap for the next uh, two or three years, right? And so that was an exercise that I had already started. And and uh, those conversations uh, continued to uh, happen uh, throughout the course of 2016. At some point... So did you manage it all your, yourself or, or did you get like a, a banker or how do you do this? So we didn't have a banker to, uh, to manage the actual... Uh, uh, process of of the uh, you know the back and forth and and to create a sense of urgency and to create uh, a sense of competition and things like that and so that's where usually the bankers bring the value right but you know ultimately I, I always have mixed feelings about using bankers and I guess there is there is no founder who has sold a company and used a banker who has I've talked to who has been like utterly thrilled <laughs> you know with that uh, yeah. whole experience and the money that they end up paying the bankers and all of that, right? But, but you know, for example, ultimately all the offers that we received for Automatic were all relationships that I'd been building for almost like 12 to 15 months even before the acquisition happened, right? Because these things take time. Nobody comes and writes a nine-figure check for a company after meeting them like uh, a month ago, right? Like yeah. maybe, maybe that happens, but what most entrepreneurs should know is that you know, companies are bought, right? Like you don't go and all of a sudden decide to sell your company. Like a larger company will come and they will choose to buy your company. But that process takes time of getting to know you, getting to know the capabilities of the technology you've built, the team that you have built, and how well does it fit into your strategy over the long term. All of these things take time, right? And so you can't all of a sudden decide that, hey, I have six months of cash left. I'm not going to go sell my company and assume it'll just get done with the building of the relationship and all of those things will happen uh, in a short period of time, right? And so, yeah. uh, you know, and, and happily, that, that's one of the things that I had done uh, right, you know, screwed up in lots of ways, but uh, obviously, I, you know, that's what I kept telling my teams too, right? As long as you're doing 51% of the things right, hopefully things will turn out right, right? Because you're also making lots of mistakes along the way, but this was a decision to build those relationships that worked out. And finally, uh, you know, the offers we got all came through those relationships, but the bankers did play a role in creating that sense of competition and urgency and, and all of yeah. that, which is what you're good at. And that's the role that they play. Uh, and, and uh, yeah, so we ended up kind of like, kind of like removing yourself. I agree with you. I think that having those relationships is, is key, but I think that, you know, just like what you were pointing to being able to remove yourself from being the bad cop, you know, especially when you're the negotiation happens and you go into detail into numbers. I think that the founder needs to be always the good cop 
and the one that jumps in to untangle things whenever they need to be untangled. So, so I think that that's um, that's an interesting uh, take there. So, so let me ask you this then: what were, what were the terms of the deal? So, you know, what I can talk about, what has been made public, was that it was uh, an acquisition for 115 million dollars in an all cash deal, and there was obviously a bunch of money left over for uh, you know the team that stayed on and the retention and all of that. And so, uh, yeah, that was the uh, deal, finally. And uh, it was a great outcome for everybody involved. And uh, so, worked out. Really cool. And what was the first thing that you bought for yourself? You know, like I said, I come from a very, uh, you know, simple, boring, uh, middle-class background in India. I'm not the kind of, uh, uh, you know, guy who's, who's all about the flashy stuff. And uh, <laughs> you know, I'm still, you know, it's kind of boring. I... I Money has not been a big thing for me uh, in my life. Of course, you know I will be lying if I say that the financial yeah. isn't uh, uh, good. It's amazing. Just not yeah. have to think about uh, money and, do, and the freedom that it gives you uh, to pick and choose what you want to do for the rest of your life. Like all of that is amazing. But uh, in the grand scheme of things, I'm not the kind of guy who would just go run out and buy a Ferrari or whatever, right? So that's just not me. Yeah. No, I hear you. I hear you. So, so let's talk about, you know, passion, you know, and let's forget about money and let's talk about passion. So, so that passion has uh, driven you to start, you know, and, and do it again. So what happened with Airbase? So how, how do you come up? Because I, I believe that you launched Airbase uh, very recently. So, so tell us about Airbase. Yeah. So, you know, one of the uh, problems that I faced building automatic, uh, there were many, but you know, by nature, I'm a naturally curious uh, you know, kind of person. And whenever I see a problem, I naturally think, of, hey, is this a business opportunity? Is, this, is there a startup here? And, and that happened when I was building uh, Automatic too, right? And whenever I came across something like that, you know, I just went and made a note of it in a Evernote document, saying, hey, potential ideas, look at it when you have the time kind of thing. And one of those problems was just how painful the process of how we spent and managed money was. Right? And this is a you know, problem that pretty much every business faces. And if you think about the process of how businesses spend money, all the way from how does it get approved? How do you make the payments? And then how do you go and categorize it, record it in your accounting software? And if you kind of think about all of those different steps, it is a very messy way in which companies end up doing it. There are so many different tools in that stack approvals in, in a growing company because remember like even now airbase is focused on mid-market companies we're not thinking about fifty thousand person enterprise companies and things like that we're focused on you know mid-market companies growing companies our sweet spot is like 50 to 500 600 employees that's kind of uh, uh kind of the magic uh, zone for us and when you get there you know you, you you're at a place where you you want more a little more process right because you want to budget you want to make sure that you are you have a plan and then you're working towards that plan but then simple things like wait i have a budget but then how do i make sure i'm adhering to that budget how do i make sure that people who want to spend money in the company are requesting it and the right people are approving it like how does that happen today it's so completely broken right it just happens on slack or email or maybe a finance team would have put in place a janky process like a google form and and that's where you go request spend and and the actual payments also happen in different systems you have a corporate card program like an American Express or the bank that you're working with, you know, a lot of money is being spent over there. Vendors are sending you invoices. 
They're using a system like a bill.com, a concur to kind of process the invoice, make the payment yet another system. So you have all of these uh, different systems in the mix. And in the middle of all that, a big thing that has changed over the last five, six, seven years is that the pattern of how businesses spend money is fundamentally different, right? Everybody has figured out that a recurring revenue business model is the best one. Everything is a service. Uh, and it's not just about software subscriptions and things like that, right? It's also, you know, you're ordering stuff on Amazon and DoorDash and Instacart and, you know, everything is a service. It's so easy to put down a credit card and order stuff that people do it. We face this in our personal lives and it's a much more acute problem in businesses. You know, at, at Automatic, I literally had a spreadsheet of 160 different things that we paid for on a regular basis, right? And, and it was incredibly hard to ask a simple question, hey, what, is, what are we not using that we can just stop paying for, right? And, and just zero ability to easily answer that uh, question. So all of this was very frustrating to me. And, and you know, I, I, and it was a lot of busy work and, and manual tedious work that my finance teams had to do. Uh, and, and of course, I didn't have the time or the patience to do anything about it. I identified it as a problem. You know, and just tracked it somewhere. But finally, once you know, automatic was acquired. Uh, my wife and I took a break. We traveled around the world, did all of that, and and uh, then I spent a lot of time talking to people, right? And that that was a big lesson. Also, is that I did not start writing a single line of code until uh, you know I had spoken to at least two dozen controllers and and finance leaders and founders and things like that, and to really dig. I had you know I. I went deep into the problem and I had a fairly good understanding of it myself, but that process gave me a much better understanding of, of what uh, finance teams face on, on a day-to-day -day basis. And then I essentially went back and I, I worked with the designer. I did those sketches myself. I uh, went back to all those people uh, with, with higher fidelity mockups that, that the designer that I worked with uh, helped me come up with. And I basically said, look, if I'm going to build this, are you going to buy it, right? And and this is the solution that I'm thinking of. It has evolved, obviously, since then, but but a lot of people looked at it and went, yeah, if you solve this problem of how we spend money in this specific way, we're going to, we will buy it. This is a much better uh, solution than what we have now. And once I had pre-sold it, once I had that confidence that uh, I would get customers, that's when I started writing code, right? And that's a common mistake a lot of entrepreneurs make, and I made uh, early on in my career, is that you start building and you, because building is the most expensive thing you can do. And you don't want to kind of build first and then figure out if somebody will actually buy it. You want to get, you want to reduce that risk as much as possible. You want to de-risk that process of selling as much as possible upfront and then go build it uh, uh, so that, you know, you don't have to uh, spend a lot of time, money and effort building something that nobody wants, right? Yeah, and so, it's, a, it's the mentality of build it and they will come. You know, it's more a sell it and then you figure out how you deliver. Yeah. And so, of course, you, you, that's a fine balance, right? You don't want to overpromise. You don't want to lie. You don't want to misrepresent. Clearly, you're not, you should not do any of those things. But at the same yeah. time, how do you kind of find that balance between uh, making sure that you are only building things, which is the most expensive thing. You're only building things that you have the confidence that you are going to be able to sell and charge for, right? And so, yeah, I went through that process. And, and uh, you know, spent a bunch of time uh, just then building the product, right? Spent the next, spent like the latter half of 2017 just building the product, started onboarding customers towards the uh, latter half of 2017. And, and 
you know, did that throughout 2018. And it was all about iterating through the product, really honing in on the value proposition. And are we solving the uh, 10x problem for customers, a really valuable uh, problem. And, and we, we ended up with some great customers, right? So we have like companies like Gusto and Segment and Get Around and Doximity and a you know, bunch of folks like that that, that have been using uh, Airbase uh, for a while. And, and uh, so, yeah, that has been a fantastic journey along the way. I've ended up building uh, a really great team and uh, I've been implementing a lot of the lessons that I learned building automatic in terms of capital efficiency. You know, Airbase is a fully distributed remote team, right? I have a team uh, around the world and, and uh, uh, that has been great from the perspective of attracting really high quality people, no matter where they are and doing it in a very capital efficient way, right? And so, uh, we were pretty much cash flow positive uh, uh, towards the middle of last year, and 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 you know that made raising the Series A super easy because there was a lot of evidence of paying customers and and things like that. And, uh, and so who, yeah, who did you who did you have on the Series A? So uh, first round capital uh, led the round, and uh, nice. Richard, who, who's the partner over there, uh, you know he he's uh, on my board. They're a, they've been a fantastic firm to work with so far, and there are a few others. Uh, in the mix, but uh, yeah, so I ended up raising around that. And that's the other lesson is that you can always go raise tons of money, but you should ask yourself if you really should, right? And I think constraints are good and and uh, making sure that you don't overcapitalize yourself before you are confident that you have figured out uh, the right pain point for the right customers in the right market. You have figured out the sales motion. You have figured out how you're going to uh, scale that out before you yeah. have answers to those questions. Uh, you shouldn't go and raise crazy amounts of uh, uh, money, even if you can, right? And Absolutely. So, I mean, yeah. I always say that you raise money to, to speed up the machine. You don't raise money to build a machine. And I think that when you're raising money for building the machine and you still don't have product market fit, you're shooting yourself on the foot. 100%. Yep. So I want to ask you something because we've been talking about lessons and definitely you've learned a few, you know, quite a few actually. Uh, if I, one question that I always ask our guest, if you had the opportunity to go back in time and talk to your younger self before you were launching, let's say your first company, what would be one piece? And this is just one piece of advice that you would give yourself and why? <laughs> There's a lot, right? But if you were ask me to pick one, I would probably, you know, tell myself, to focus a lot, lot harder on the customer pain point, right? And to really dig into it, to unpack it, to look at it from every angle, to talk to as many people as possible, and to gain a lot of confidence that you are working on something that is truly an important uh, pain point for the customer. Because if you do that, and you do that well, and you're not in a hurry or in a rush to figure that out, because in a lot of cases, there's this pressure, right? Oh, I, I went into this accelerator, I raised a round of funding, and I have to do the next round of funding within 12 months or 18 months. And, you know, forget about all of these artificial deadlines and spend as much time as you need to truly deeply figure out what that pain point is. And if it is a real, uh, you know, pain point and you can solve it in the right way, that's the other part of that question is that how do you solve it in the right way? And if you get those two together, if you get those elements right in the beginning, 
everything else down the line becomes easier, right? Your ability to market, your ability to sell, your ability to attract people to come work with your company, your ability to control your own destiny and become profitable sooner and, and to charge a fair price for what you're doing. Like every single thing lines up behind that. And so that's the number one thing I would tell myself is like spend a lot more time uh, really digging into uh, the problem and the customer and understanding that really well. I love it. I love it. So for the folks that are listening, tell you what is the uh, best way for them to reach out and say hi? You know, I'm I'm on uh, LinkedIn. I'm not that active on uh, social media, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, I guess uh, LinkedIn is a good way. I'm on LinkedIn. You can feel free to reach out to me over there. And Or uh, if you go to our uh, website, uh, you know, www.airbase.io, there will be a contact. Uh, way to contact uh, me through that too and someone on our team will put you in touch with me and that should be fine too amazing well thank you thank you so much for being on the deal maker show today Alejandro, thank you so much for having me and uh, it's been great if you like the show make sure that you hit that subscribe button if you could leave a review as well that would be fantastic and if you got any value either from this episode or from the show itself share it with a friend perhaps they also appreciate it so also remember that if you need any help whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.